Welcome to Script to Screen's Talks podcast. Script to Screen is a charitable organization dedicated to developing the craft and culture of storytelling for the screen in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Part of our annual program, the Talk series, brings the creative community together to hear inspirational speakers delve into their creative process, craft, philosophy, or the broader creative landscape. Ever found yourself confused by music rights? Or grappling with decisions about soundtrack or score for your film, TV, or online project? Wondering what the difference is between publishing rights and master rights? In this Kōrero, Don't Give Up On Your Dreams soundtrack, held in Auckland in July 2020, music supervisor Karen Rachtman and screen composer and music editor Samuel Flynn Scott chat to Scripta Screen's executive director, Jackie Dennis, about what they think filmmakers should consider when thinking about the music for their film. Thank you for coming tonight. It's really lovely to see you all here and see quite a few familiar faces. It's fantastic. So um, I've pulled Karen Rachtman and Samuel Scott in to talk to you tonight, partly because these two work together themselves and so they've got a good rapport and also because uh, they really do know what they're talking about. Um, Karen's worked on some, um, and I don't want to get anything wrong, so I'm going to read it. Um, Karen's worked, Karen has worked as an acclaimed music supervisor who has collaborated with filmmakers such as Baz Luhrmann, Quentin Tarantino, Paul Thomas Anderson, and Warren Beatty. She has worked on some of the most beloved soundtracks from all time, including Pulp Fiction, Moulin Rouge, Romeo and Juliet, Clueless, Boogie Nights, and Nicky Caro's North Country. Had to throw that in there. Um, also a founder of a music supervision and consulting company called Mind Your Music. Karen is working between Los Angeles and New Zealand, although I suspect you're, suspect you're here in New Zealand a lot more at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Won't be rushing back to LA in the next couple of weeks. Um, working on lots of uh, games, films, projects, television, whatever. Welcome. Thank you. And uh, Sam, Samuel Scott, you know as an impressive musician who uh, has amazing bands like the Phoenix Foundation and he's performed and recorded with Climb My Pretties, Flash Harry and the Boom Shack and has released solo albums. But the reason, is that wrong information? Oh, um, no, no, just bands I do, I have recorded with, but haven't thought about it in a long time. <laughs> Sorry to bring that up. Mm, that's right. um, no, just joking. But the reason that we've got you here tonight is because of the soundtracks that you've done, like Eagles vs. Shark, Boy, Hunt for the World of People, Separation City, and television shows like The Golf and Clever Man. Um, yeah, so really pleased that you can be here and I can put this down now. Um, you've also done two television shows together. Um, one of them is Moving Art and the other one is Skylanders Academy. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, mm. cool. Okay, well, what we'll do now is we'll go to a clip. Yeah? Great. Just to start with something that Sam scored.
show of hands. Just interested to know who we've got in the room. Um, if you're a producer. Great. And a director? A writer? A composer? What else do you want to know? Uh, music supervisor, music coordinator. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, we've got a couple. Great. I thought you were the only one in New Zealand. Okay, I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Thank you for that. Um, I think I'll get Karen to speak first about how not to be daunted or afraid to reach out for the song that you really want, because this seems to be a question that comes up a lot is, should I just give up? It's always too expensive. Should they just give up? No. <laughs> um, it, it, it's, I, it, it's funny, because like in my career, I, people, like, I, there's a lot of films that I've worked on where I've been able to find bands to record or find composers to record and make their deals. But there's been a lot of films that people think I'm the coolest person in the world because I thought of every song in Pulp Fiction or Boogie Nights or something like that. And really, I didn't, you know. Um, my job was, although I thought of it too, like on Reservoir Dogs, like my, the Reservoir Dogs was a very low budget film without distribution. And the reason I got hired on that job is because Quentin Tarantino had a music supervisor on his film who told him that he had to have 70s soundalikes, that he couldn't afford any real 70s music. And I read that script and I was like, this is the best script I've ever read. And I was like, I will get, and, and it was very important that he had stuck it. How many of you have seen Reservoir Dogs? Like, so he had to have the song stuck in the middle with you. So I, I said, I'm going to get you that song. And I had to speak with Jerry Rafferty and Joe Egan, and, and it took a lot of work to get that song on this low-budget film of a filmmaker nobody had heard of. But I didn't give up. I didn't give up on his dream. And um, so he, after that, he asked me, you know, what can I do for you now? Thank you so much. And I was like, I think you need to fire your music supervisor and, and hire me. So that's how I started my relationship with Quentin. But I, I tell you that because... Yeah, there's going to be instances where you can't have those songs that you um, dream of having, but you should definitely go for it. You should always go for it. So um, I, I thought maybe, should we start off with some slides? Do you Good want idea. to do that? Okay. Yeah. Good for you. If you guys want a song, right, is there a song that you're wanting? What do you usually do? Research. Oh, great, thanks. <laughs> Research songs, okay. So, um, the, I, and, uh, pardon? Oh, hey, Lou. <laughs> um, okay, so, researching songs, um, you can go to the next slide. There'll be a little bit more. So, um, if you're, you want to, first thing you want to do is, like, the record company is easy to find out. You can look at Spotify, you can look on iTunes, you can find out who, who has that master. And also Discogs, I should have, well, I'll talk about that later, but the publishing to find out. Um, APRA obviously is the Australian, New Zealand publisher. Um, and I, I, I usually go, obviously my history is in the States, so I go to ASCAP and BMI and, or PRS, or there's this new site called Blocker that has all these really good information on who owns what songs. 
And with APRA, is if you write them, which I do, or my office does all the time, they get back to you right away with the information. Also, APRA clears music for you too. They will negotiate for you. And they're great and they're wonderful and they'll get all the rights, but you should be aware that they charge, I think, 10% for films and maybe 5% for ads. Um, is there anybody from APRA here? No? Yeah, I'm not in the office. Oh, sorry. Okay. So, um, so um, and also you might, if you're looking for a dream song, you should negotiate it yourself or have a music supervisor or somebody who's really going to be passionate about getting that song because you can always make your plea. You can find out a way to get to the artist, find out a way to get to the songwriter. So they, once you find out who owns it, you can go to the next page. This is like me looking for a song on ASCAP. And so I see, okay, Sony ATV owns it. So I'll, um, I'll go um, when I, so I'll, these are, and then you have all the performers that did it, you can see. And then um, I, so write that down, ASCAP.com, because it's a good place to start your research. And then there's BMI.com, you can go to the next page. So BMI search, you can research, um, you know, who, who um, in the States. And then sometimes it's also just good to know, like internationally who owns it, because it will be a different person here. And you might want to get direct to England, go to PRS or go to BMI. You can go to the next one. This is quick, don't worry. So this is Blocker, really quick, go back. Blocker is actually a really cool site that has a whole bunch of information so you can find out like a little bit more about the writer shares. And it's just a database, it's not a PRO site. So then um, when you want to research the masters, you can you contact Recorded Music New Zealand and they'll tell you who owns the master if you can't find it online. So then you can contact, I don't think I have any more cards. I don't know if this was, oh. So then you're gonna write your request letter for that dream song of yours to the publisher and to the record company. And you tell them about your project and you tell them um, your budget and how the song is used. Describe the scene, the type of use and the timing. And then this, if you guys have pens or you want to look it down or whatever, you know, these are the rights that you need to get for a film. Um, at, or, you, you know, that's all inclusive of everything. And then after that, I put a different thing for festival rights, because a lot of people here, I bet, probably are just making an independent short film. And all you need up front are festival rights, which are going to be less. And so I did, the only thing is, you can just go for festival rights and it would be like a three-year license and you can pretty much people will license them for cheap. The only thing that I would suggest now is also ask for online festivals because obviously we're living in a time where that didn't exist before, but now online festivals are something that um, does. So in this, when you're requesting songs, like really, you know, if you know how much money you have in your budget, you can put it in there. And if you're dealing with APRA and you want them to negotiate for them, I would suggest putting it out there. Like, I don't have, I, you know, I, this is all the money I have. Please beg them to consider it because this paperwork will just be passed on to them or you can send it to the record company and the publisher or hopefully figure out how to get in touch with the artist. You know, it's a great time for New Zealand music. You know, we should all be considering more New Zealand music, but also in the States, a lot of bands that you love all over the world aren't working right now and they're really hungry to do stuff. So it's a really good time to be asking people mm. to participate. 
So can I, I think that there was a whole lot of things raised there that um, I might just explain a little okay. bit. So when there's a when you have to get rights, there's two rights that you need to get. There's the right that's in the master recording, which is when you go to the record company, and there's the right that's in the song, and that's when you go to the publisher. And um, there might be more than one publisher because there might be more than one songwriter. So that's where the research comes in, is that you have to find who to get the master from, unless, of course, someone's recording it for you. Like, if Sam's writing music for your film, um, either you're paying him to own the master or you're not paying him enough and he owns the master. Yeah, usually <laughs> so, the case in New Zealand. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's you owning the master or him owning the master because you're creating it yourself. But, um, yeah, so there's those two rights, aren't there? Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, so the the sync licence is for the publishing. It's for the people who that represent the writers of the song. So there's a lot of times, like if you're licensing a Phoenix Foundation song, even though you're going to you're going to need to go to two separate people to get the publishing yeah. and the master. But if you know Sam or you think Sam is going to love your music, I would strongly suggest you reaching out to Sam. One hundred percent, because this this does happen with someone who I know who's doing something cool will approach me and they've got hardly any money, but I know what they're doing is is great, and then I'm like okay, well, I want this to happen, so I will then email the publisher and the record company in one go and go, this is happening, he's got $100, it's a yes. Right. And then everyone's like, oh. Yeah, and the, <laughs> the publishers and the record but, labels. Yeah, so, you know, that's all part of getting your dream soundtrack is actually thinking, who can I go to, who can I ask, how much have I got, be respectful. Don't just ask for it for free, you know, like if you have got 100 bucks or $250, offer it because it's just respectful that yeah. you're doing a transaction with them because someone's going to have to sit down and prepare a piece of paper, a licence for you, so mm. that you can prove that you've got the rights, which is all part of your chain of title when your producers have to worry about that. There's always a bit of work. But also, like, um, do put some effort into those letters you send out, the emails you send out in terms of being passionate about your project because it can, I mean, you know, I think um, I, I am all for good budgets and getting paid properly for being in movies because that's kind of what I've lived off a lot of the time in, in the last 10 years of my life. Um, but there's situations like, for instance, my dad wanted to, I think I talked about this in Wellington, I'm going to say the same stories here. So my dad wanted um, Steve Biko by Peter Gabriel for his um, tally movie about the Springbok tour movement in New Zealand and he wrote a letter to Peter Gabriel direct, somehow, you know, just asked around, he's very good at this sort of thing, asked around, got Peter Gabriel's email and wrote him an email talking about um, his experiences in the anti-apartheid movement in New Zealand in the late 70s and early 80s and could they please license it and they have a budget of this much money. And Peter Gabriel came back and said, yep, I will get you the publishing, I will get you the master, don't worry about the license fee, I don't need the money and I don't want it, I just want my, my music to be in this film because the um, those protests were so important. And so, you know, there are, if you can express what you're looking for, often with the biggest artists, money's not actually what they're thinking about. What they're thinking about is being part of something that they connect with, I think. Sometimes it's not very often though, I hear um, Yeah, but, but, but you really do, it is, I mean, negotiating and really pleading your case. And if you have a good project and you can send them footage or, any, you know, whatever, if, if, if you're really that passionate about that song, do whatever it takes to get it, 
did you have a question? Yeah, I just had a question for, for this request letter. Is the budget, budget what you have to track the budget of the, the project? Um, uh, well, I think you can make an offer in the letter. I'm talking about the film's budget. And a lot of time people want to know what the music budget is. So, and a lot of times, like, there's different kind of deals you can make. Like, if you have a music-intensive film and there's, like, 10 songs, you can do Most Favored Nations. Do you guys know what Most Favored Nations is? So, Most Favored Nations is nobody gets, everybody gets the same price. So, like, what I would do, like, back in the day, you know, to be tricky is I had a good relationship with, like, Bob Dylan's publisher, right? And I'd be like, okay, I'm going to start with him because I know he'll give it to me. And then it's hard for anybody else to say, now we need more money than Bob, you know? And so there's way, you know, to, to sort of set yourself up. If you know you can get that sort of deal, a good deal with somebody, set it up as a most favored nations deal. Because, but then they also, you know, your main title and your end title are always going to be the most valuable songs. They're going to be the most expensive songs in the film. And visual vocals would be the third, like when you yeah. see somebody singing on camera. And of course, you always want to clear those songs way before you shoot. And one thing Sam and I like to talk about, too, is when you're ready to go into production, please don't leave music behind until the end. Yeah, and that's twofold as well. That's the, the score. You need enough money for the score, because people always say, there's only going to be 10 minutes of score in this film. And it's like, no, there's not. It's going to be like 50 minutes. You know, unless you're making some incredible art film that somehow doesn't need music, you're going to start editing it and you're going to realise everything that's wrong with the movie you've made and you're going to need music to help you through a few difficult bits. <laughs> like, it's, it's basically what music is kind of there for. I think that's what score is there for a lot of the times, to help tell the story when you don't quite have the pieces. Um, and then, so help that's one thing. Help mood. Yeah, yeah, and help tell the story and all those things. Um, but then the other thing you hear from directors is, yeah, it's just going to be score. I don't think we're going to license any songs for this film. I just want it to be original music. Uh, and I always think, well, you really should have some money set aside because you're probably going to change your mind on that as well and you're going to be editing it and the editor's going to throw in Crowded House or something and you're going to really want that song and then someone from... The film commission is going to see it with that song and they're going to fall in love with that and everyone's going to get that thing called Temp Love where they just fall in love with the song that's been chucked in by the editor. Have you guys um, heard of Temp Love? Yeah. It's a terrible, terrible curse. It's a disease. Um, <laughs> but then what you then have to do is you have to go back to the film commission, in New Zealand anyway, you have to go back to the film commission and go, we really want this song and we think it's going to really help the film and then you have to try and get more funding from them to actually pay for the... Which maybe that's what you should do. Maybe you shouldn't put the money aside. You should just. Pay I know more that's really very good advice. Because they might say no. <laughs> we'll try, but, and then but, you can say I told you so at the end. But for composers, by the way, while we're on the subject of temp love, you know, people like sure, you should be getting your music to directors, and you should be getting your music to music supervisors. But if you really want to know the secret sauce, is make friends with editors. So because they're the ones that are doing the temp score. And yep. that, that's the one that that once the director, what is that? You know, they're going to hear that and they're going to want to keep that. So that's my composer advice. Oh, totally. For, that's great. It's great advice. And I, where are these editors? I don't know because they're all stuck inside. But, it's 80 hours a week. I don't know where they are. Tell me where they are. I'll bring them my music. Right. And, and, and it's something composers don't think enough about, really, is they, mm. they're constantly, you know, kissing up to me or directors and producers. And it's really the music, ed the editor, the person who's sitting there putting it together. If they fall in love with your track, 
and it's a great, you know, or your score. Well, even once you're on a project, just befriend the editor because uh, you're going to have a better relationship with the director if the editor is on your side as well in terms of creative choices and, and you're getting them your own temp score stuff that they can be putting in while editing and things like that. And it just all becomes like a, a nice team. Whereas if you're clashing with the editor early on in terms of what they stylistic approach they think will be there, you but again, that's another reason that we say to filmmakers is if you bring a music supervisor on early, you'll be able to know what songs you can and can't get. You'll be able, they'll be able to work with the music editor to supply them with temp stuff that, you know, you, they, they, you know, is viable. It's just, it, it's, it's going to save you money in the long run by bringing somebody on and early. So what do you think about producers finding out about songs that they, you know, that the say the director absolutely wants the song on the film before they go into production, getting some quotes. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Mm. It shouldn't just be left to when you get into post-production. You should be thinking about it right up at, at, up front, you know, um, in pre-pre-production, <laughs> budgeting phase, when, before even, you even go and get money, right. budgeting phase. And if you're, if you're writing... Mm. A, a script, you should, you know, do the research on the songs too, just to see, oh, that's a big, huge company. I might have problems. Oh, look, that's it. And, you know, and you can start right if you, if, or start researching so you can reach out to the artist or the songwriter ahead of time so they know that, you know, so, just, you know, do the, the early bird gets the worm. Yeah. Or yeah. not though. And so often yeah. you don't get the song. And I love the whole attitude of, like, don't give up on trying to get the thing you want because sometimes you do, but also sometimes you don't. And at that right. point, I think, you know, having a music supervisor and a composing team and producers around you who have lots of knowledge, you know, you might have to listen to 200 songs to find the next one that you think would be okay in your movie after the first one that you love. So, Sam, why don't we go to another clip? that you've composed for now. And then I wouldn't mind talking about the language that a composer and a director might have to talk to each other to try and achieve mm -hmm. what? Should, yeah. Should so. we listen to the one, I Love You Awesome, which we had to do for Taika when he couldn't afford The Who on his first feature film? Was that, there a story that sounds about like that it would have been a good conversation. The first clip was just... Just a great just, piece. Just yeah. Taika dancing. It's yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. You have made me the happiest man in the whole restaurant. I love you. I love you
Great. It's got very rough endings, these clips that I've seen. You didn't go down the plagiarism path? <laughs> no, well, it was so panicked because the film was finished and everyone thought that the Who song was coming through because they, they had managed to license M. Ward singing David Bowie and um, Stone Roses and various other things. But in the end, it was like, it was something like $60,000 was the lowest they got the nego negotiation to. And I think they were prepared to pay something like 20 or, you know, quite a lot of money for a film that probably had an original budget of about 1.2 million or something tiny. Um, and then it was just like, we, we've got no, we've got no music there. We need you guys to do something. And uh, we had already handed in all our music, but I was like, okay, I'll do something tonight. And I went to our drummer's house with a microphone, a little recorder, and I said, okay, play a beat that's kind of like this and about this fast. And he played that beat. And then I went home and I made loops out of it and I recorded the ukulele. I'd stayed up all night recording and going, huh, yeah, oh, into a microphone. <laughs> and then Conrad from Phoenix Foundation arrived in the morning and he put a whole bunch of things on it. And um, by the end of that day, we sort of had it in the film and we were like, what do you guys think? And Taika was like, oh, I love it. It's great. Cool, yeah, that'll be fine. <laughs> and... Uh, um, and so it was quite easy, actually, in the end. There wasn't much angst about it because there was no time. So it's amazing how flexible even the most creative minds will become once they've got absolutely no time or money That's left over. That's why TV's more fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, that is why TV's more fun because you, yeah, you always run out of time. Um, but then the best thing for us was uh, they were then writing up the sort of finishing contract stuff and um, Ainsley, the producer, was like, well, that song, you guys had already done the whole score, so that song is a license, and I don't know, we'll give you $200 for the license or something like that, and we're like, fine. Uh, and she was like, but you own it forever. It's, we, we don't own it at all. And then about a year later, Telstra, who no longer exists, used it in a huge ad campaign, and they used it in that ad campaign for four years straight, and that paid for a lot of Phoenix Foundation things, recordings, trips to Europe, our rent, you know. So it was actually like a super positive situation out of the kind of nightmare panic situation. Yes, there's all those um, hidden, all that hidden money that can come through afterwards. Um, I guess maybe we'll just touch on rights. We touched on it at the beginning, but um, normally if a composer's um, scoring for a producer, the producer wants to own the copyright of that because that comes unencumbered. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But um, budgets are quite small in New Zealand, so quite often I think there's a bit of a negotiation about that. What's your experience with that? Well, uh, I know why. the American, well, I've worked on a big American show with you where the producers then own... The public, so the songwriting is 50% of the music, and then that songwriting is split into two sides, the publishing side and the writer's share. And the writer's share always goes through APRA and always goes to whoever wrote the song, no matter what's negotiated. And the publishing share will also go to the writer unless they've got a publisher, in which case the publisher then takes their percentage and then pays the rest to the writer. Or if you sell that publishing to... Um, you know, Disney Pictures or whatever, then it goes to Disney Pictures because they feel like they've paid you to write the, the song, so they own the publishing right. side. They call it a work made for hire. They hired you to create a work, so therefore you don't own it, is their thinking. And and in, in the States, that's very common. When you're writing for a film, 
they will take it from you. And not only that, Netflix will really stick it to you. <laughs> like Netflix, a lot of times, they'll not only, they'll cut into, they'll, they'll want to buy out so that they don't have to pay you your writer's fee. So instead of you getting your writer's share, which can be decent yeah, on a yeah. Netflix and series, keeps, right? Yeah, it keeps yeah, going. Yeah, it's, and it's evergreen. They might say, oh, for a year, instead of that, you know, it's, it's, people are always trying to figure out ways to. There've been a lot of protests against the changing yeah. model at, at Netflix and the changing models at Discovery and um, right and, and the changing models at Spotify. I mean, all different ways. Yeah. You know, it's it's mm. it's interesting times. They just keep figuring out how to give you less and yeah. But I feel like in New Zealand, you're not going to be paying. There's there's no New Zealand films that have a budget that will be will be paying composers enough to even consider that. So don't worry about that. I, the I would say that. Belongs, the publishing belongs to the writer in New Zealand. And then you have the master license, and I think what you can do is negotiate like an independent record company and say, let's own that recording 50-50, and then maybe right. after, you know, a certain amount of time, five years or ten years or something, that that master recording goes back to the recording artist. So what Sam talking about there is an exclusive period of time that the production company has for that music, so it can only be used in that context of that film during that time. But then after that three or five years of exclusive time, the composer might, or someone, mm. anyone, even the producer might be able to then try and get it used in a Telstra ad. Yes. But, but a lot of times you're lucky when that happens because a lot yes, of times un- they don't. unlikely. Because they don't want your, the music that was in their beloved movie coming out. Sam might decide he wants to license it to a porn film, you know, and then like... Mm. Oh, that's the thing. Uh, their budgets are the worst. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also, you have a moral right. You can actually say no. A composer right. can say no it, it to alcohol, to, yeah. porn, cigarettes, yeah. whatever they don't agree with. Religion. Yeah. So there's everything's a negotiation. But so, also, you can put the the record company can put the music out. I mean, sorry, the film company can put the record out as if they were a record company. Yeah. But what is so often is that the better thing is for the film company to go. We don't know how to do that, and we'll pass it on. In fact. Eagle vs. Shark got released by Disney and they did a really good job releasing it, but they have since then, it's been out of print forever and now the CDs go for like hundreds of dollars occasionally online. And um, it's one of those things where they're actually such a big company that they're actually useless to deal with because they've got bigger soundtracks. Than Are you talking one. about the soundtrack from the film? The Is it on from Spotify? The film, yeah, the actual like OST on CD kind of thing. No, it's not. A, we've been trying to get it on oh, Spotify that's forever. That's interesting. Oh, yeah, it's... It's right. It's complex. I um, I okay, we've, so anyway. sorry, we've been talk. So we've tried to talk about licensing and how to go about it and scoring, not how to go about it, but how to talk about it. Um, but there might be some questions in the audience. So has someone got a burning question they would like to ask? Yes. So if you've um, licensed a piece of music that you've composed, and I'm the producer, and I've got that license for five years. Once that expires. If I want to then sell the film on, but I then clearly don't hold the rights, if you're doing a film, always get it in perpetuity. Yeah, yeah. You have to. Because so, if TV shows, often you can do a five-year license. But it, And nowadays, yeah. even, really, it should be in perpetuity. Everything's in perpetuity. Everything, except for ads. Unless, yeah, except for ads. So always get it in perpetuity. And but the license just means I can't put it in, in another film while your film is still, you know, a new and relevant Thing, if you know what I mean. You'll have it in perpetuity, yeah, but the problem is, is it's, it might not look, in five years' time, he could also put it in another film. And you might not like that, but since you got such a good deal, 
Yeah. Okay, and but you were the first. You were the first one. That never happened. But I, was I, I, I did a um, a soundtrack with McCarvey Chopper, yeah. and he we had exclusivity for five years, and then after that, he's used it in other odds. Right, and odds. you see it a lot because yeah. there's that editor in the cutting room who has that piece. Yeah, mm. yeah, and yeah. Um, we Not had yet. some questions. Oh, did that answer your question, Louise? Oh, yeah. Hi. Just if you're doing something for New Zealand and perhaps you approach an artist and say, can you do me a deal? It's going to New Zealand and then you sell it. Would you, maybe you're hoping to sell from the start, would you try and pin down the extended rights? Yeah, absolutely. Get everything. So an Even, option for that. Absolutely. Well. Even when you get a festival license, get an option for the full license up front so you have it. And, and it will only last for a certain period of time. But negotiate everything up front. If you go broadcast this, festival Yes. And, and a lot of times, like, if you're doing a, a movie and you know it's going to be released, even if it just goes on, you know, something, it, it, you know, theatrical is interesting, but even if it just goes on YouTube or Vimeo and you're selling it yourself, you want to make sure you get it in perpetuity always. And if, if it, you, if, if it's the kind of project that's great, and I just, did deals like this here where you do something called a step bonus deal. So you can say, look, when our film does a million dollars New Zealand box office, we'll give you the fee again. Or if it does 10 million US box office, or if it wins a major award at a film festival, we'll give. So they have an opportunity instead of making 5,000 to end up making 25,000 if the film does good, you know, so that you can do bonuses at certain milestones. And, and that's very helpful too. And it, um, either step deals or bonus deals. You can think about it as a bonus. And usually what uh, the film I just worked on that I did that on was, I think it was like a million dollars New Zealand box office. We doubled their fee. We gave them their fee again. Um, or it was like 10 million US box office and winning a major award in a major film festival and or an Academy Award. So let's say it hits all those three things, which isn't hard. Yeah, I mean, it is hard. That's so funny. <laughs> but if it's this incredible film, right, and, like, these people got involved in it and they gave you their song for cheaper, it makes them feel better. They're in it with you, you know? So they're really... So then it. do you knock on the producer's door and say, hey, guess what, we've got to pay that fee again? Well, we, you make a contract that's, like, a little addendum that says this is a bonus arrangement, we're going to pay you this much at this thing, and we'll report to you in December and June up until, you know, it, it, after it wins these things, we'll stop reporting to you. Like after it does U.S. theatrical, we will no longer report to you. But it's a very simple agreement, and it's a bonus agreement. And I found in New Zealand, too, with the bonus agreements, they don't want it to be part of the regular license because um, the distributors that purchase it, they don't want it to be a part of their license because they don't want to be responsible for it, which is part of your delivery requirement. So they will, um, you'll have to do that separately and that will come out of your profits. I, I had an informal bonus deal in a film, which I, I don't know if I want to say what it was, but it was a film that did very well. And there was no, it wasn't written down and I just assumed it was just people talking bullshit, but the producer got back very quickly after the film got in touch and went, this is, this is all happening. We're going to give you this much more money. And it was quite a lot more. So I, I just thought that was really... Honourable. Honourable, yeah. And I and actually, I do find most of the producers in New Zealand have been really great 
to deal with and really good people because I think New Zealand's so small yeah. and it's not it's not a cutthroat music and uh, cutthroat movie industry really it's actually pretty supportive plus people yeah. are trying to build relationships they want to be able to come back and work with you again I imagine right and now yeah. after that happened if somebody else comes along and you believe in their film and they really don't have any money but they offer you this again it's mm. really nice you know it makes you feel better like so what what you guys are suggesting here is ways that you can negotiate because it all comes down to a negotiation of how you're going to get this music and hopefully, you know, that's just another tip that you can have these step payments. Um, do we have any other questions? Yes. Karen, can you tell us the story of calling Steeler's Wheel and saying, okay, no-name director, violent film, we want to use your song in a scene where there's a cop who's done nothing wrong they're going to torture him and cut his ear off. Mm. How did that go down? Yeah. Excellent question. That, it was just like that. <laughs> um, I said, I'm working, and, and I didn't know these people, and I had to speak to them personally. So it was a real kick for me, you know? It was like, I, I, like, I, I had done a few films before that, but um, nothing like this. Like, I, I knew I was onto something, you know? And so um, I, I, I used the analogy of Clockwork Orange and um, Singing in the Rain. You know, like, you could see, like, why would you want their song in that? And you're paying homage to it and how important it is. And I don't think I got into, like, the cop did nothing wrong. I said, it's kind of funny. It's tongue-in-cheek. He's cutting his ear off. You don't see <laughs> You don't really see him cutting the ear off because you didn't, in case you didn't know that. Um, but I sort of notice it's happening. Yeah, you do know it's happening, but I didn't. But it, it took a long time because there was religion. I don't remember who it was. If it was Joe Egan or Jerry, you know, there there was a, 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 a it, it it wasn't in something that he was looking for, you know. Yeah. And um, and I I really just begged and begged, and I think in, and and ended up getting that song. So and and Quentin at that time too. I think the song was ten thousand dollars is what we paid for it. And Quentin was going to pay for it himself. But I said, no, Quentin, I know I'm going to get you a record deal that's going to be able to pay for these songs. So that's another thing. We got a soundtrack album deal. At the time, soundtrack album deals like that used to sell a lot, but they don't anymore because they're all pre-release stuff and now digital, you know how it goes. I mean, still there's, you know, the business, but... I had to consent. I think the amount of soundtracks I've, I bought that I've since realized that Karen worked on it's insane and in fact when she first uh rank got in touch with us I thought it was a joke because I was like I was like who's this person saying some American kids cartoon this is bullshit uh and then I googled her name and went yeah. and then bullshit. after season three he was like don't ever call me again <laughs> <laughs> that show was great um in terms of the making deals with people and stuff as well. I was just thinking about this because this film's about to come out, so it's a good chance for me to plug it. Um, but so there was a, uh, there's a filmmaker called David White who wanted us to work on a documentary which had um, no money, like really no money at all. And um, Lauren Taylor, who was in Eagle vs. Shark, uh, was living with him and she went, and he, he was getting someone to do some music, but it wasn't working and they didn't really know how to score a film. She was like, just ask Phoenix Foundation guys, they'll do it. And uh, I was like, they're not going to do it for like, whatever it was, $1,000 or something. They're going to score a whole movie for that much. And she was like, well, just ask them and see. And uh, so he did. And she called me up as well and was like, you've got to work with David. He's really great. And 
I was like, well, if Lawrence says so, then I probably should. And we saw the rough cut of the film and it was fantastic. So I was like, well, yeah, I don't, I would do this for free because I just can tell it's a really interesting filmmaker and, you know, this is just the first thing we'll work on and then we'll work on other things. And then since then, um, he's paid us to do various jobs and then we've just done his feature film, This Town, which is about to come out, which was, again, still a pretty small budget and a pretty small fee. But then now he's, you know, negotiating to do what could be a really cool big project and I'm, you know, pretty sure he'll hire us on that one as well. If he doesn't, then this whole story is completely <laughs> um, But, you know, you sort of know when people are good at doing stuff and you want to work with people who are good and who are interesting and who you like as people. And so as long as you're not a dick, then just ask whoever you want, whoever you mm -hmm. think is good. And if they pick up on your vibe, then you'll work together. Yeah, and you've just reminded me of something. I was at a conference, film conference in New York, um, American filmmakers, independent filmmakers conference, and um, they had a panel discussion, and there was this guy there that was about 75, and he'd scored all these amazing films, and I'm sorry, I can't remember his name. But he said, oh, look, I just have months where no one asks me to do anything, and I just get so excited when the phone rings and someone wants me to do a score. And this guy had done, like, amazing films, like, I'm trying to think of the, is it the apartment where the, there's, you know, like a, yeah, anyway, you get the point. It, 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 the, you know, like. Films are special things. A feature film, they don't come along very often. And, you know, I feel like I've been doing the scoring stuff for a long time now, but it's 20 years or something. Oh, The Conversation. The Conversation. The ah, Conversation. Amazing film. Yeah. But you still, feature films don't, like, you know, Directors in New Zealand don't get to make many feature films in their careers, and film composers don't get to make, don't get to work on many films. So it's definitely not insulting to be like, oh, I've only got 20 grand, and um, these people have done these movies, or they did this thing overseas. They, you, you still want to have the conversation and see if it's going to be cool or whatever, or not 20 grand, five grand. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, Sam won't do something for $1,000, just so you know. <laughs> I, I know very well. Morgan. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more around the language that you use when you're working with directors and editors. Like, if, Especially if the tempo music isn't working, how do you go about proposing tracks or getting to a point where you do have a track soundtrack? Mm -hmm. um, so, from a, a music supervisor's point of view? or um, Morgan's a producer. Um, so the temp, well, that's why, again, earlier the better. Like, if you have a music supervisor on who's got the director's ear and got, has the producer's ear and it starts working on, like, what kind of composer you want and can work with the music editor and the editor so you can start to really flesh it out. Or just by, you know, I always tell producers and directors when I start working with them, um, you telling me something's not working is just, is really important information. You know, finding out, oh, I hate this. It just gives, you know, it's for certain reasons why it doesn't work really helps me to figure out why, how we can find something that does work, you know, and, and also if an idea is bad, you know, why it's bad and what would be good and, you know, referring to other things. But just, it's a lot of trying stuff. You know, as a music supervisor, I will sit, and, and put so much stuff to picture. And I will send over so many songs and sort of walk through the steps. So there'll be something there you like, you know, it's it's just, it's the earlier the better that you bring somebody on. So to 
I hope that answered your question. I mean, just really getting in early and working with the editors and and directors, producers. And it helps if you can articulate why you think it's not working. Mm. Is it, yeah? And I think that's like, in a way, I always thought my job was sort of like a therapist, you know, like I could work with the composer and then work with the director. And I, I, so many times I'd have to play the bad cop, you know, like the director would be like, we love it. And then be like, it's not going to work. You know, like as yeah. the director told me to do that, you know, you'd have to be, you, 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 you're the, you're the go-between. And, and between the producer, the director, and the uh, composer, or you know, that you not only license the songs, obviously, you're trying to choose the songs. Or I, I love hiring songwriters to write songs specifically for a film, you know, those are the most fun, or recording covers and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, really getting to know the director and the producer and, and knowing what they want, you know, I, I think that's what a music supervisor is really good at is figuring out what they want coming up with options, okay, that doesn't work because of the, you know, and, 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 and knowing what things are going to cost and figuring it out and can you get a record deal that's going to help pay for the music and all that kind of stuff. And just all of this time that goes into it just adds another layer to the film, doesn't it? It's sort of worth the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, music adds so much. You, you sort of quite often think with a film when the score is really good, you don't necessarily think about it too much. You just enjoy the film and feel carried along. I think there's a certain, yeah, it's really hard to work out what language to use as a composer to a director as well. You know, and there is there, there are definitely instances where it's really, really helpful to have a Karen in there who can kind of translate back and forth because you can get super frustrated um, and it's a difficult thing as a composer where you start to feel attached to something or you feel like the director's losing their mind and um, you're going around in circles and whatnot. But ultimately, everyone just wants it to be really cool. And so you just have to keep listening to each other. And I think as you, as you, as you do more films, you get much, much, much less precious about your own work. You're just like, they don't like that? Let's do something really fast that they do like because we've all got to get the job done. But it's hard for, I think it is really important that, that directors and producers have really specific notes and not just kind of go, yeah, I like this, but I'm not sure, or something like that. Like, that's kind of the worst email you can get about a scene, because it's like, oh, well, yeah, I don't, mean? or, or yeah. So tell me you don't like but, it. So that's, and tell yeah. me you don't like it at, you know, 55, 37, and for those, those three seconds, the mood is too much like this. But then that next bit, that's a nice mood. So maybe if that mood could be the whole mood or something like that. You don't have to say this needs to be an E major 7 flat 9. You just have to say this exact moment works, this exact moment doesn't make it work. And, and I think that's that's the inter I think people are intimidated. Like, I don't know music speak, you yeah. know, or something like that. And you really don't have to be intimidated. Like, I don't know what just... It makes me sad and I want to be happy. Even those kind of things are just too slow or... I don't mm. like it. It reminds me of that, you know, you're, you don't have to be saying. Yeah, because I don't know what those music Yeah, you can just anyway. say bigger, bigger. Yeah. <laughs> um, I saw a question over here. Yes, from a writer, a screenwriter's point of view, um, you're obviously writing the story and you've imagined it and you've got mood and tone and those kind of things in, in your head as you write. So if you're doing a pitching script, what advice would you give to a screenwriter who starts to get hung up on a particular song, maybe the lyrics speak to them, maybe the mood speaks to them, 
Um, and obviously, you don't have the rights yet because you're just still writing a picture and script. At what point would you have to say you're going to have to make that a bit of a vague concept, not put those songs in the script? I, well, I, that, that's an interesting thing. Like, you know, having worked with like Paul Thomas Anderson and um, Quentin Tarantino, who they literally write to, to the, you know, they, they're, when they're writing, they're coming up with like the song before they even come up with the scene sometimes, you know? So, and, um, but Quentin and knew better too, just to take out all the songs and put like a surf song in, you know, so that you wouldn't be turning off the producers or a studio who's like, oh, you'll never, or you're too specific, or they might have an opinion that that song's not going to work. So I would have it in your dream list and share that with your music supervisor or your producer later. But when you're writing the script, you in your creative process, know what you want, but then take it out. Because <laughs> yeah, you know? there is a don't, person... Don't references that There's a person looking at your script going, is this a cool creative thing? And then they've got someone else looking at your script with a spreadsheet going, $10,000, right. $20,000, you or, know, like... Or, like or, or even they don't like that song. They'll be like, well, why true, didn't, yeah. you know, their sensibility. So I think it's best to... Yeah, the general rule... Soundtrack cue, and where you've written the name of the song, you would put ballad yeah, a sappy ballad comes on, or a you know a uh, classic Kiwi hit. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. or nineteen seventies dance. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So just as an idea, what was the budget for something like *Reservoir Dogs* or *Pulp Fiction*? How much money was? Well, you know, it's very funny because we had very little money in *Pulp Fiction*. I think I we the, literally they didn't have any money. They had like a thousand dollars per track. So I got Steeler's Wheel for ten thousand, and um, and then we got the other songs for you know I think roughly, but I, I negotiated all of them for about twenty five hundred dollars per side. Remember the publishing and the master, so it was like five grand, and then we didn't have the money to pay for it either because Quentin said I'll pay ten thousand for Steeler's Wheel. I was like, don't worry. It was one of those real put the you know horse before the cart before the horse yeah. and then i got a record deal soundtrack deal and which paid for all the um uh which paid for all the songs in the film you got an advance i would say that yeah, the record advance. industry was very, very different very, the film very industry different. is maybe very not different. so different it's but probably the not a good reference really but, but i'll tell you something that's not necessarily true like if you want to have because the soundtrack is a great marketing tool for your film well of course and, yeah but there's no one who's going to go He's going to give you a hundred thousand dollar advance on a. Maybe, maybe not you, but. Well, maybe not. But honestly, no. maybe not even Quentin Tarantino now. Oh, oh no, they gave it to him just for the vinyl rights. Yeah, yeah, back then. But no, now. this time. Really? Yeah, on the on. But a lot of people. But I'll tell you who didn't is a lot of the people that licensed it wouldn't give him like streaming rights because they don't want you streaming the track there. They want you streaming it from them because then they'll make less money. Yeah, so all of those but, old soundtracks now that on Spotify, yeah. they're just playlists of them on their original albums. Yeah. As opposed to... I, I still make money on Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, but um, there's... So how do you make money on that? Do you Did you have a... As a music supervisor, do you get a As a music supervisor, yeah. I you usually, get a yeah. producer's point. I would always get... A, I would get a, a, usually a good percentage of the record advance, which on Reservoir Dogs, I think I ended up getting like, I, my fee on Reservoir Dogs was $1,000. And, and then I got like, a, I think $2,500 from the advance. And I made a lot of money on that record. 
you know, so it, it definitely paid off and then Pulp Fiction too. So, um, but now with the um, soundtrack, so if you create a new song, or if you have a score, score albums are very popular. I just did a video game and the video game soundtracks do really well. You know, the original music, if you have original songs and if anybody's in the video game world, you'll, I'm just telling you now, get original songs, don't do, yes? I have a question about uh, Elizabeth Ellis. Okay. We already part of your job as a soundtrack supervisor. I want to know, her mind, Stephen Wright was a Tarantino. So Stephen Wright was um, Sally, who was the editor. Um, her husband, Dean, was best friends with Stephen Wright. And they were all just hanging out. Now, it was my idea to put him on the record, yeah. I think. But he was in the movie. Yeah. He met, they were friends with things. And it was a lot of fun working with him and hanging out with him. There was a question up here. Karen, can you speak to any example where you get no money and the idea is the opposite to going to someone famous and going to someone really obscure like what Wright Kuda did, finding a little band in Cuba and just using them and then making them famous um, and finding really obscure bands that, that you make famous through the film. Can you speak to any of those examples? Um, yeah, I, I can't think of any now, but I oh. know I have. Who? Um, on um, what we do Lisa. in the shadows oh. feature oh. film, oh. that's all really obscure music, yes, obscure, obscure Russian music, and obscure, you know. And um, actually, that I was did, that was a nightmare for you licensing that stuff, Jackie. I remember. It was, I was the music supervisor on that one, but the funniest story of that was that there was a band in Russia, and they just yeah yeah just use it, and I'm going yeah, but I actually need to do a license and pay you because I need the paperwork, and he's like, oh, don't worry. We don't worry about that stuff. And I'm like, no, no, I really, if you send me a bank account and you just sign this, and I, it was like $100 New Zealand dollars I sent. But then um, a year later I got an email from him saying, my friend just took me to this awesome film and it was what we do in the shadows and our songs in it and I'm so happy, thank you, you know. So, you know, like, it, it's, it's obscure stuff is, is, it can be tricky to licence, but the fact is that there's a lot of obscure music here in New Zealand that can be brilliant in scenes. Um, you know, you, you, every song does not have to be a power hit. Right, I think mm. on Reality Bites, I don't know if you guys know that soundtrack, um, Lisa Loeb, she was an unsigned artist, and we did that song, and that song, she was the first unsigned artist to have a number one hit with that song in right, America. Right. So, you wow. know, that she, and, and there's been a couple times where, you know, I've um, super, like, clueless, you know, or songs like, I think, from um, about, um, The Cardigans. Yeah, The Cardigans. They were going to get dropped from their label, and I put Love Fool. Was that on Romeo and Juliet? Or yeah. Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, I put it in Romeo and Juliet, and it became, and they were, like, on their way out. So, you know. I bought their album because of it. Yes, I have um, I have listened to a podcast and heard a song and heard it's in a film and gone to watch the film because I like the song. Right, right yeah. You know, so um, there's a cross-promotion thing that happens. I would say just about everything in Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction as well. For my generation at that time, I would have been, you know, 14 or 15 or something when Reservoir Dogs came out and it was just like the coolest thing I'd ever seen. And I hadn't heard of any of that music. So even though there were hits in the 70s, for a whole new generation that was like, what is this stuff? And so, you know, I feel like for a lot of those those acts, they would have made their biggest oh, paydays yes. in a long time. Mm. 
I, I, I had people thanking me, like, you know, after Dick Dale, with, who did Miserloo from Pulp oh, Fiction, yeah. like, of course, then he he thought for some reason then I would just want to use Dick Dale all the time in every film, you know, like, <laughs> no, it's not right. But <laughs> we did have um, two more questions here and then we're going to have to wind up. So, Louise, you go first. Um, just very quickly, I know that um, for screenwriting, there are some guide rates in terms of the length of things. But can you offer any advice? I mean, I know it's how long to piece of string, you get someone to do it for nothing or someone to do it for 25 grand, but any are there any guide rates out there? And are there any such things as model contracts for us to, to go to? The for, for, a a, a, for a composer? Yes. Um, I, there, I really don't think there is. Uh, well, there, there are model contracts, certainly. And yeah. um, uh, if you can, if either music publishers are very good at having very tight contracts, which are helpful for all parties. Um, and if, you, if you're working with an artist who isn't with a publisher, maybe talk to some people you know in bands who are with publishers and see if they have a contract that they can show you that you can just copy And I'm from. sure there's some online. But as far as yeah. have Afro got some? I've got to say Afro, just okay. a small thing. We do have a template of sync license. Uh-huh. Yeah. Just to give you guidelines. Yeah. yeah, and do it as a sync license, actually. And and what I would do is if you're if it's a composer, I would put, if your movie is 90 minutes long, I would say up to 90 minutes. Yeah, this is a this it's is a, a negotiation. This is a big, a contentious issue between me and my publishers, who I'm always arguing with about things because um, I'm argumentative. But because um, they always want to be like, no, it's got to be 30 minutes or whatever, and I'm like, well, I actually just don't, I personally, as a composer, don't really like having minute limits because I just want to make the right amount of music for the film, and it um, it's. Are they you know, trying to protect you? They're trying to that, protect me. Yeah. Obviously, they're trying to protect me, but I'm like, but it I is, don't need protection. I need to okay. do the it job. It is a stickler. A it's thing. very important, actually, when you go and ask for, always ask for more. And and first of all, like, let's say, if you want to use a song for a minute and you know you want to use it, say up to full use. And then if you get a quote that's too high, go, well, fine. What if we only use it for a minute? Or at the same time, it ha I can't tell you how many times they'll come back to you. The filmmaker will be like, you just went and cleared the song for a minute and a half. And they're like, it's a minute 45. And you're like, oh, OK. And then they're like, but why do they want more money? So always ask for more. So everybody, the, 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 usually they charge in 30-second blocks. So not, if not. you've got 32 seconds... Or 35 yeah. seconds, you're literally supposed to pay for 60 seconds. That's what you're getting at. But yeah, yeah. I, I don't find that. Like, I know that actually in New Zealand that's TV, pretty that tight is. In New that, Zealand. That, that's, that's pretty But, but I, I, don't, I don't do that. I always ask for more. Yeah. And just because they can. And being tied to 30 second blocks is. Have you got a quick question? Scary. Yeah. yeah. With um, licensed tracks, you often run into this situation where you see a movie that spent a lot of money on a licensed track and be like, I just saw another film three weeks ago that used them. Your heart goes out to these filmmakers. Right. So is there anything you can do as a filmmaker if you're wanting to license something to just get notified or be aware if there's something else? Because obviously it's like just two people reach out at the same time to license Well, you can them. ask them. And is that something it, that you would typically do? Or is it um, you, if, it, if it's important, you can ask them. I, I don't really do that. But it's very interesting. On I was working on Pulp Fiction and Reality Bites at the same time. And um, they both wanted my Sharona. And um, I had to go to the knack and say, okay, here's what's happening at Pulp Fiction, and here's what, they're cute, and they're in the gap, and they went with reality bites. So 
but it, it, it is interesting. Like, you can research it, that to see what other films it's been in. But there was, like, a John Denver track in 2017. It was, like, Logan Lucky, Akja, and, and, like, two other films that all came out in six months. And I was just like, right. I mean, you can... Well, you know, I think there's a thing happening at the moment as well with Spotify discovery playlists where people have got a certain amount of taste are getting switched onto these same songs because of the algorithms, and then wow. you're seeing them in multiple TV shows over the credits, things like, I don't know, something that's a bit obscure, like Arthur Russell, that if you're into slightly obscure music, then he's, his music is a bit more obscure, but it's also amazing, and then everyone hears it, and then everyone right. wants to put it in their TV right. show. Right, and just the way that they're making so much stuff on Netflix now and licensing so much music in the Amazon. Yeah, yeah. So... Actually, did you have a quick question? I did. I It'll be the last what, question. Yeah. What was your career path into music supervision? Um, I was um, a high school dropout, and I became a hairdresser. And then, um, no, I got a job working for the head of music of this studio called Canon Films. And when I heard, I mean, and it's funny because people always be like, oh, I want to be a music supervisor. And they think all you do is put like music to film. They don't know about the negotiation and the arguing and the music cue sheets and the, all the different things and then making the record deals. And, you know, it, it's a great job, I have to say. It's, it's great. And but I so I started working on films that, know, you know, uh, Delta Force. American Ninja, Hot Popsicle number two. Oh, my first film that I ever worked on was Rappin', which was the the tr after Break In, Break Into Electric Boogaloo, then came Rappin'. That was the first film I worked on. So I got to learn about, you know, on camera and all those sort of performances and then worked for Herbie Hancock for a while and then came to New Zealand and met Luke in, when I was 20. And then I, I left back to... Uh, um, America and and just, start, just started clearing music. I worked on a movie called The Commitments, yeah. which had so much music, so I really was good by the end at clearing music. And then just... I didn't got, even know you worked on that one. Yeah. No. It's incredible. Was, but so, and just doing, you know, just just doing it, you know, and, 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 and knew great people, you know. So that really helped me along the way and, and got a lot of luck and a lot of hard work and you know, definitely Reservoir Dogs certainly uh, helped a lot. Well, both of our speakers tonight have websites, correct? I actually think there's a bit of a... Oh, no, there's a Monica website. So most of the music I do film-wise is under the, the title Monica now because that's basically half of the Phoenix Foundation do, um, yeah, do the soundtrack stuff Monica. these days. Monica. But, like, not the woman's name. Like, <laughs> no. our Monica is Monica. Yeah. It's really confusing. <laughs> and mind your music. So you know where to find them if you need them. And um, so delighted to see everybody here tonight. But now let's thank our speakers. The talk series is proudly supported by the New Zealand Film Commission, Foundation North, Images and Sound and White Studios. Music for the podcast was provided by Poddington Bear. And voiceover is Lucy Wigmore.